Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is a podcast for Killer Whales. I'm Allison Morrow. We talk all about the J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod Southern resident killer whales, everything about their survival, which uh, we still have a lot of mysteries to figure out. And one of those detectives looking at all of those mysteries, the very smallest mysteries, is uh, Linda Rhodes, who is a research microbiologist at NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Science Center. Linda, what does that mean, the very small things? What are you looking at? (laughs) So I'm looking at bacteria, uh, parasites, and worms. Uh, These are, uh, and viruses. So these are are organisms uh, that live on other bigger organisms like us and killer whales. Okay, so we talk about on this podcast the challenges facing the southern resident killer whales being food because they're salmon eaters Mm -hmm. and uh, mostly Chinook salmon, we think. And so Chinook salmon aren't doing so well. So their food is not abundant enough, but also there's pollution and boat noise, those three things. How does this research you're working on fit into those three challenges or two of them, I guess, specifically? So those other kinds of challenges can cause animals to become weakened and unable to resist infection by bacteria or fungi or parasites. So they can affect the the health status of the individual and its ability to resist those kinds of infections and diseases. Right, because often we talk about the food problem, which is an issue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not getting enough to eat, we think, but you're not saying that isn't necessarily an issue. In fact, that could be uh, a problem because, like you say, it makes them more at risk for some of the pathogens or the, the issues you're looking at. Correct, correct. And we don't know exactly what that relationship is. Are they undernourished and becoming infected and diseased, or do they have some other underlying infection and disease, and as a result, they don't want to eat anymore? I mean, think about yourself. When you have the flu, do you exactly feel like eating? No, but fortunately that passes and you come back to eating normally. So often we don't understand the exact cause and relationship or which which event preceded uh, the other. But we know that, again, if you think about these uh, pressures, the, the contaminants, the noise, and the food availability um, can all lead to an animal being susceptible or vulnerable to pathogens that normally would not cause a problem for these animals because uh, pathogens, quite frankly, are all around us. And in fact, often they are on you right now, but your ability, because you're healthy and your immune system can fight it off, it's not a problem. What becomes a problem is if you become weak say you like being malnourished, or we often think that the chemical contaminants that that they are carrying in their blubber uh, is what's called immunosuppressive. It can uh, push down their ability to fight off infections. Or if they're stressed out under chronic stress from noise, those, that affects hormone levels, and that could also affect either their ability to fight off infections or even suppress their ability to, to take up nutrients properly. So, um, so a, an animal that has that kind of pressure on it may become more vulnerable to infection. On the other hand, if there's more of those pathogens present, so you could be a healthy individual, but if you're swimming around in a, in a cesspool, um, that increases the chances that you would get a pathogen that successfully infects you. 
So how do you do your research? <laughs> so we use primarily samples that the animal casts away from its body. We use feces or poop. We use exhaled or mucus or snot. When they exhale, they oftentimes will blow off a big wad of mucus. And we also use what's called exhaled breath. So if you've seen pictures of or videos of killer whales, they come up to the surface, they release a big volume of air, and you'll see there's a spray of droplets that go up in the air. And we've worked really hard to capture those droplets and analyze those droplets. We're using what are considered to be non-invasive techniques. That is, we're not trying to draw blood or poke holes in them, um, just using what they cast off from their bodies. And then we take that material and extract DNA uh, from that material. So the DNA will include any of the microbes, both good and bad microbes, as well as some material from the whale itself. Now, before we get to the part I'm interested in related to sewage, I want to go back to something you said before we started the podcast, which is that in marine mammals uh, in captivity, they have a common issue with this exact problem. Is that right? right and that's right. what piqued your interest in it. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, when you look at uh, marine mammals in captivity, usually the, the cause of death is some sort of an infection. And uh, most often it's a respiratory infection. And that's that's the last step in an animal's, uh, often in a, a sick animal's uh, continuation to, to, to death. Um, what led it to that, that uh, infection, we don't necessarily understand. And oftentimes animals in captivity have been brought in because there was something wrong with them in the first place. So, uh, but under, knowing that those kinds of infections do occur gives us an idea of what kind of bacteria or viruses or pa parasites are responsible for infecting marine mammals, and that gives us some insight into what might be happening with the wild animals. Okay, so how does our human waste play into all of this? <laughs> and I was just shocked when you were telling me earlier the amount of sewage that can go into Puget Sound. So can we start with that? I mean, let's just give people an understanding of the scope of like how much uh, is going in to Puget Sound, and then what does that mean for these whales? Well. Uh, I will say most of the human sewage that is being put into Puget Sound through municipalities like Seattle and Tacoma, it is treated, okay? I don't want to give the impression that we're just piping it out there untreated. Um, but we are a rainy area and the sewage treatment, the sewage system, the pipes that have been carrying our waste, we have added a lot of people on and a lot more water volume to our sewage treatment plants than the pipes that can carry it out. And those pipes have a diversion. So when there's a flood event and all the storm water goes into that sewer system and overwhelms it, there's a thing called a combined sewer overflow, which will at that point shunt water raw sewage directly out into Puget Sound. And I was mentioning that uh, some studies done a couple of years ago identified just in one day in October in 2016, almost 150 million gallons of raw sewage was dumped into Puget Sound from Seattle through a CSO. 
it just makes me just <laughs> cringe going swimming in the summertime <laughs> around here. Well, luckily we don't have a lot of rainfall, so it is a, a rainfall-driven event. I think the other uh, figure I was giving you was Vancouver, B.C., estimated somewhere on the order of 12 billion gallons of tre untreated sewage goes out through their CSOs, and they're trying to address that. I mean, all of these municipalities are trying to address that problem. Is that every year? What was that? Annually. Yes. Annually. Annually. Wow. Yes. Yes. So why does, I mean, it, maybe it's obvious if you're swimming around in sewage, you might get sick, but what is it specifically that these whales might get from untreated sewage? Well, um, one of the things that we did detect in a study that was done over a four-year period with southern resident killer whale was salmonella, a, a, a species of salmonella that is not it's usually something that you find in the gut. We were finding it in the exhaled breath. So remember these guys have to, you know, take a deep breath and go down underwater and they're probably picking up some of the, a little bit of seawater whenever they're breathing. So that was quite a shock to find, to find this, this particular species of salmonella. They, that, could, they could also inhale fungi, fungal spores as well. So does that mean they're getting the salmonella that deep? in the water, we don't know where it is. We don't know exactly, but they do inhale at the surface. So when they come up near the surface, they start to exhale just before they break the surface. So when that plume goes up, it does have some seawater in it, but then they're taking a deep breath, which also there's probably seawater still in the air and then going back down. I see, so probably they get it at the surface yeah. when they're breathing. More at the surface, exactly. What did we learn from the case of L95, who was the whale who was uh, tagged, right? Right, um, right. And they got an infection from right. that tag. Right. So the interest, ultimately, the, or it, the cause of death was a fungal infection that looked like it started at the tag and then uh, progressed to its lungs. And uh, we did some sequence analysis of that and discovered that it, it was indeed a fungus that can infect human beings. And from the, uh, there's a lot more data on humans <laughs> than there is from, from killer whale. But in humans, this fungus is very invasive into blood vessels, so it explains why it moved from the dart site into the lungs. Um, and in humans, the prognosis is very poor if you get an infection with this particular fungus. So, and it also, Again, using humans as kind of a model to try to understand what might be happening with killer whale, it suggests that uh, a whale infected with this fungus is probably not in very good shape to start with. So sure, the fungus may have been introduced by the dart, but a healthy animal probably could have fought off the fungal infection, and in this case, he didn't. I mean, within a month, he was dead. And that kind of fits what you see with humans, too. Do we know where that fungus comes from? Well, it's actually a common fungus that might even be in your compost pile. Wow. We, we did do an ex extensive survey of water samples throughout Puget Sound and the coast of Washington looking very specifically for this fungus and a very sensitive uh, test. And we could not, we d didn't detect it off the coast of Washington and we only found it in 10 samples out of 560 samples that we had collected in Puget Sound. So it's not very common in the water column. So that suggests that it may have been on the surface, um, but it also suggests that the susceptibility, in this case, the susceptibility or the vulnerability of that whale to a fungal infection was probably higher than you would expect from a, a healthy animal because it didn't take very much of that pathogen to be present to cause the infection. And it's not just human waste that you're looking at, right? right you're right. also 
considering the possibility that our pets or uh, other wildlife are also causing some of these problems. Sure. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we had done a study looking at fecal indicators, and we can trace back where the source of that fecal indicator came from. So we had two different kinds of indicators, one for human-sourced fecal material and one for ruminant, or which is like cattle or deer, uh, ruminant-sourced uh, fecal material, and found that there was plenty of the human indicator around Seattle and Tacoma, whereas there, there was a lot more of the ruminant indicator in areas where there's more agriculture. And then we found other factors like impervious surface or paved surface contributed to increased detection of the human indicator and higher river flow in- contributed to increased detection of the ruminant one. So it, it suggested to us there's certainly a connection between what ends up on land and what flows into the marine system. So when you have this information, and I know you're still looking for a lot more, what are some of the things that like a municipality such as Seattle can start to do to address some of these issues? I mean, other than not having any more children, right? <laughs> I mean, here we are. We're going to have to deal with, with right. people. It's a growing city, right. And, right. and lots of people are moving to this area. What do we do to try to reduce that impact? Well, uh, there's a couple of things, um, and obviously muni- municipalities are, and, and uh, local authorities are trying to increase their capacity for dealing with waste, take the bright water treatment plant. Uh, I think one thing they could ask people to do is change behaviors. Um, we waste a lot of water, we, and the, the more volume we put down the sewage uh, system, the more we're asking it to handle that. So uh, I think asking people to be more conservative about the water they use, there's a benefit. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, in other areas like California, it's like, don't use so much water because we don't have any. And here we're like, don't use so much water because you're dumping it down the drain. We have too much that's right. going out and <laughs> right, overflowing. Right, right. But we may also be in that California situation at some point if we have a dry season or a, a low snowpack season. So I think teaching, you know, human behavior is the most labile thing we have. It's the easiest thing for us to do, but it's also the hardest thing for us to do because people don't see an immediate benefit to it. And so that's where I think awareness of our impact on the marine systems, if people see the connection between what they do and what that impact is, they may be more motivated to actually do, to make those changes. And and uh, that's where municipalities can help to inform their customers uh, about the benefits of, say, be not using as much water. On that vein, I've done stories before with researchers who look at contaminants that make it through the wastewater treatment mm. process and still, uh, whether they're drugs or uh, one researcher with the state told me about alkyl phenol ethoxylates, like mm-hmm. the surfactants mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. some of our detergents and soaps and, and how that can have estrogen modeling components <laughs> to it. So I do think there is something to be said for, uh, even if there are larger discussions to be had on habitat recovery and dam removal and whatnot, uh, mm-hmm. taking inventory of our own behavior certainly cannot hurt. Right. And, and I think that's part of the job of the scientists to help connect the dots between our behavior and the consequences of our behavior. Sometimes it's not just a one-to-one linkage. Sometimes there are multiple steps in between. But that's really what's important for us as scientists to help us and the public and our officials, our elected officials, understand that there is a direct connection because we do represent probably the biggest pressure 
on the natural ecosystem. And, and that's, I think, a great place to end, as I had asked you earlier. I mean, you know, we're spending a lot of time and money and effort and, mm-hmm. and human power to, to understand what is uh, causing the death of these whales, why they're not reproducing, mm-hmm. why their babies aren't surviving. And uh, there's only 75 of them right now at the time of this recording, and uh, very few that are even reproducing at this point or that are old enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the point. You know, I asked you that earlier. It sounds so heartless, but why? Why bother if we may not get all the answers in time for uh, to understand totally what's wrong with these whales and be able to do everything we need to do? Why, why bother? Well, we need to bother because the whales are not the only organism that we're impacting. We are impacting salmon. We are impacting the diversity or the the variety of organisms that live in our marine systems. And so much of our identity and actually our survival here relies on this marine system, even though we are not aware of it phytoplankton make oxygen, right? <laughs> and so we, we do need them there as, as part of our, our ecosystem. So even though the focus right now is on the killer whales, because that's an acute situation, um, it also says a lot about what we do to the marine system through all of our activities. And so the more we understand how driving our cars and putting uh, oil and gas and uh, car- combustion effluent into the marine system, or how we're flushing <laughs> uh, personal care products down down the drain. I think the more we become aware of the impact that we have as individuals, I think the better it says for our ability to change what we're doing and preserve and hopefully restore <laughs> our marine system to a much better functioning one than it is right now. And as you said, it is something that we can do. We, we can. We can change our yes. behavior. Yes. yes. Whereas it may be near impossible to change the southern resident killer whale's desire to eat salmon yeah. or whatnot, right. which is what I hear sometimes. Like they don't adapt to the current situation, so they lose. That's right. evolution. But right. in this right. sense, it's not really evolution because not I guess if you consider our impact on it right right and it and it is pretty clear that um, if well it's pretty clear that the scientific community and I think also the political community is beginning to understand that uh, we need to be looking at things with a larger eye with a broader perspective that we can't just look at this action and this effect you know, the direct effect and call it good. We have to start looking at what happens from that. What are the ramifications or the downstream effects of those actions? And that's both negative actions and positive actions. I mean, that's, and that's what the Puget Sound Partnership is working on. And uh, that's all the scientists who work for that uh, organization are trying to understand those impacts. So it's, I realize that we're focused on killer whales, but in many ways, it has grabbed the attention of people who probably would never understand the relationship between us and killer whales. And so this is actually a good opportunity for people like yourselves, yourself and all the researchers to convey that information to people who have other things going on in their lives. We don't ask them to focus on it the way we have, but if we can transmit the nugget of information that makes them stop and think about what they're doing before they do it, that's that's a big accomplishment in itself. And, and how do you also move that 
uh, sort of sometimes doom and gloom negative information mm-hmm. to encourage and inspire people uh, to be hopeful. I mean, it's got to be tough sometimes with the work that you do to keep your head up and say, oh, we can make a difference. It's going to get better. <laughs> so how do you give people hope? Um, I, I say that if you look at humans, the resilience of human beings to adapt and to change, I think that the and and to expect that those changes, and I think focusing on younger generations is really key because it is their future and they deserve to enjoy all the pleasures of nature that the rest of us that are much older have enjoyed. Um, I worry about the shifting baseline that people. 30 years younger than me don't remember what it was like back in the 70s right when I first moved here so um, I I think that that's and we have you know there are success stories I do remember the 70s PCBs were a big issue I remember the big dump in the Duwamish River and at that time it almost seemed hopeless we had so many nasty chemicals around and we have actually dialed back on our use of those and so things things we can change the ozone hole isn't over the Antarctic anymore. We don't have acid rain on the, in the East Coast. We can make a change. So there are plenty of good examples for us to follow. It's just having the will and the commitment to follow through. And I can say that Linda Rhodes has also changed her behavior because she rides the bus. Right, Linda? <laughs> I've been doing it for 30 years. Okay, well, she changed a long time ago, but if she can do it, we can all we do can something. We can all do it, yes. Okay, Linda Rhodes, uh, research microbiologist at NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Science Center. Thanks for being on the podcast tonight. Thank you, Alice.